morning, everybody. It's great to be together again, and uh, thanks for taking time to join us. Uh, we are here online uh, this morning, but let me just reiterate what you've heard already. Uh, we are outside for uh, the next two weeks after this. We are still online, and so if you uh, don't feel comfortable coming out uh, to join us or if you're away, um, even just timing inside of your weekend, uh, we are still continuing online, but we will also be outdoors uh, the next couple of weeks and uh, making preparations to move indoors on uh, the 26th and just continuing to be mindful and prayerful of what's taking place around us. How do we make uh, the best preparations and the best, um, de put the details in place to best uh, be able to serve you and uh, you know protect um, ourselves, but also continue to move forward in ministry together. So this summer, we're gonna be spending several weeks inside of uh, the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And as we began last week talking about his background, we mentioned that for Paul, uh, we don't necessarily spend a lot of time uh, talking about his life and the details around it. We have uh, letters, things that Paul wrote. We have a few uh, events and things that happened to Paul in the book of Acts that uh, we talk about, but we don't necessarily take Paul's life as a whole. Maybe because it's spread throughout the New Testament, we have a variety of different accounts and you know, just little snippets here and there. Uh, but we wanted to spend some time uh, getting to know Paul, and not just for the sake of uh, trivial information, but uh, that where uh, are the principles, uh, are the challenges, are even the instructions that we can pull out of Paul's life and apply uh, to our own. And so last week we looked at background and, and Paul's temperament, uh, the zeal that he had, uh, his experiences and everything inside of his background that led up to um, him being someone that God could use. Uh, but then also even inside of his mistakes, that Paul was one who persecuted uh, the church and that God was able to forgive and to cleanse and to use him and I think to do a work deep inside of his heart to move him past probably some of those uh, regrets and mistakes and even the scars that existed inside of his life. And so uh, as we move on from that, today we're going to talk about what is uh, probably the most well-known event inside of Paul's life. And so while we don't talk a lot about Paul, this is one of the uh, instances and the encounters that we do tend to talk about when we think of Paul's uh, conversion, uh, Paul's turning to faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, uh, this story and this picture becomes synonymous with what conversion looks like. And so if you've ever used, you know, a phrase like, I saw the light, or to have a Damascus Road experience, or even to be blinded by the light, or even a Saul to Paul experience that when we talk about conversion, Paul becomes one of the biggest, uh, you know, the most vivid, uh, extraordinary examples of a life that could be transformed in an instant uh, from someone apart from Christ to someone in Christ and in relationship with him. A radical turnaround that takes place. And so we want to jump into that today, but I think also... Uh, if you're like me and you don't have a story like that where you were, you know, just had this, you know, amazingly bad or conflicted or uh, just troubled early life and God got a hold of you in a radical way, or maybe you were just going oblivious to the things of Jesus and, and God stepped in in just this, um, you know, miraculous way to get a hold of your life, uh, sometimes we think if we don't have a story like that, then Paul's conversion story is different then and maybe not relevant to us. But I think as we're going to see, there are principles inside of Paul's life and Paul's story that apply to us as well. A little bit of recap before we jump into the scripture. Acts chapter 1 to 6, 
The early church begins to expand and begins to grow, but it is largely in Jerusalem. It is largely to Jewish people. It takes place through the apostles and through that initial group of 120 that then becomes 5,000. And God begins to grow their numbers in and around Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen, who was one of seven who was set aside to serve the church, uh, because of his faith, he, is, uh, he stands trial and uh, he is executed. That's actually where we first get to know uh, Saul of Tarsus because Saul is there giving approval. Saul is there in authority uh, inside of the events of Stephen's death. What begins to happen there, though, is that the church scatters because there's a persecution that breaks out, but then people who uh, had been confined inside of the greater Jerusalem area begin to move out. And actually, God is able to take uh, that event and Stephen's death and to use it to multiply his church, interestingly, through Paul, even one of the people who was there approving of his murder. Acts chapter 8 marks a turning point in the book of Acts, and really a turning point for the church of Jesus Christ in those early days. And so we read in the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 8, the first uh, few verses, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the, the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so, again, this is a couple things I want us to see is this is our introduction to Paul. This is our introduction to Saul of Tarsus, that he is one who is persecuting the church and uh, very aggressively persecuting the church, but also that God is able to use this to then scatter the church and to expand the gospel out into not just the greater Jerusalem area, but throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, again, we're not yet to Europe. We're not yet to outward expansion that will come, but even just outside of the general area, the church begins to grow and begins to spread. When you come to Acts chapter 9, uh, by the way, the next, the, you know, Luke takes us on a little bit of a detour in the rest of chapter 8. Uh, you know, Philip begins to preach and there's the conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch and uh, you have this continued spread of the gospel and we have a little bit of a detour from uh, the life of Paul, but then we pick right back up when you come to Acts chapter 9, uh, the story of Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse number 1. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a loud voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. And so, 
at this point, you know, we get this story of what begins to happen inside of uh, Paul's life. And by the way, just a little bit of trivia. I know that sometimes, uh, you know, God changes somebody's name. And so Abram goes to Abraham or Simon becomes Peter uh, because there's a renaming. You're going to hear us use Saul and Paul interchangeably. Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was, you know, the, the Greek, the Roman name. And so there is not a change that takes, pl- takes place inside of the story we just read. Uh, Jesus did not say, your name was Saul, but now I'm going to call you Paul. It's not one of those situations. There's kind of both names are used even throughout the rest of the book of Acts inside of his life. But what's interesting to me in, inside of this, and you would expect that Paul is a major figure throughout the rest of the New Testament, but Luke, who writes the, the book of Acts, and he says both at the beginning of the book of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts that he set out to write an orderly account. And so it's interesting that Luke is going to take 28 chapters, probably limited to the, the parchment that he had and, and uh, the, the scope of his writing and what he, he felt like he could accurately put down, and he did not include everything. But yet inside of the book of Acts, the conversion of Saul is recorded three times. It's recorded in Acts chapter 9 in in kind of biographical form. Again, it it comes back inside of uh, chapter 22. And in chapter 26, uh, it's recorded as Paul defends himself to the Jewish leaders in chapter 22. And before the king in chapter 26, we get almost a, almost word for word retelling of the conversion story. And I think to myself, if you're Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why do you include the same story three times? Because Paul's important and we want people to get to know the story? Yes, maybe. Or is there something about Paul's testimony? Not just what happened to him, but as he begins to share that story with others, uh, it begins to make a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even Paul's story alone is worth repeating Uh, because of the difference it makes uh, for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing that's interesting here is I I find it uh, funny that people try to explain away maybe what could have happened. It seems to me that you would either, you know, believe the Bible or not believe the Bible. And that if you didn't believe the Bible, then you wouldn't really care because if it's just made up myth anyway, then who cares? But there are volumes that have been written. There have been pages written about uh, let's really figure out what happened to Saul because you don't go from being a persecutor of the church to being someone who just so easily puts your faith in Jesus Christ. Something must have happened. And so one of the, the theories is that Paul had an epileptic seizure on the road to Damascus. One of the theories is that he suffered from heat stroke because we know it's at midday and at the heat of the day and after this long journey, you know, Paul must have just gotten to the point where he had a bit of sunstroke and maybe that caused him to hallucinate. One, and this is my favorite, is that Paul must have, you know, had a romance gone bad and so maybe he was, you know, supposed to be engaged to the high priest's daughter and just prior to this he had been spurned by her rejection and so, you know, vowed inside of his life to turn his back on Judaism and to go in a different direction. Now, I think it takes more faith to believe in one of those stories taking place than it does to think that Jesus got a hold of his life. And I only bring those up to to say that, yeah, there are are stories out there that 
you know, when you come across a situation like this and a story like this, you tend to think it is larger than life. It seems too good to be true. There had to be something else that took place. But we know as people who have been marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've seen stories where God can get a hold of somebody's life, where God could do the impossible, where God could break in at a moment's notice and do something inside of someone's life. So Paul is traveling on the road to Damascus. He's on a mission from the Jewish leaders to stomp out this upstart cult. You see, the thought was not that the Christian church was a new rival religion, but it was really something that was just perverting Judaism. It was something that had gone off the mark, that had gone astray, and it was in danger of maybe leading good Jewish boys and girls and men and women away by filling their minds with things that weren't true. And you see, if we're awaiting the Messiah, and if we know and have expectation of what the Messiah is going to do, we know that Jesus is not him. And so anyone who says that Jesus is the Messiah must have it wrong and can do incredible damage, and so we have to root this problem out. And so Saul begins to give his life and his energy and his passion to that endeavor. And it's on that road to Jerusalem that he meets, or on that road to Damascus that he meets Jesus. As the story is told in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, there are, again, you know, just the basic elements of what begins to take place. Uh, there's about six or seven different things that I want to, you know, just place up on the screen just to show you kind of what happens to recap the story. As he's going along at the heat of the day, there's, it says a light that's brighter than the sun. This is not just a flash. This is not a bolt of lightning. This is not just the noonday sun that hits a rock the wrong way, but this is a light brighter than the sun shines. Paul falls to the ground. Um, a, a voice, the voice of Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This isn't Saul, why are you doing a bad thing? Saul, why aren't you a Christian? This is a very personal question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's response is, who are you, Lord? And some have said, is this the, you know, the, the first glimmer of Paul's conversion because he calls him Lord? Or is this just the natural sign of respect that anyone would kind of offer to a stranger or maybe a stranger in authority at this point? But Saul you know, says back to him, who are you, Lord? Jesus' response, he personally identifies himself, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Saul's reply, what should I do? What do, you, what do you want me to do? My categories have been blown apart. I had no idea you know, that any of this was going to happen or that you're even real or you say you are. What do I do from here? Because if I am the enemy of what is actually true, then maybe at this point this is the end of me. Maybe this is a blinding light that's going to lead to a bolt of lightning and I, Saul, now just become a pile of dust in just a couple of moments. Paul knows this Old Testament. Paul knows what happens when you come into the presence of God. It doesn't always end well. And so he simply just says, where from here, what do you want me to do? And then Jesus' instruction to him, uh, continue on to Damascus. But not to arrest Christians, but to become one. Go ahead into Damascus. Go to the place that you are going to go. Await instructions. And I'll show you what and where from there. It's a dramatic story. 
of what can happen when God gets a hold of a person's life. It's a story of what and when and how and why it is that God begins to move in such a way. And, and again, if you don't have a situation or an experience like Saul, it's tempting to say, well, that didn't happen like that for me. But I want to say I think it did. Maybe not in all the drama, maybe not in all the vividness, but I think the same things that happened inside of Saul's life happen in almost every conversion story, but maybe just in a different manner, in a different style, maybe just in less complexity. Uh, but the same things happen inside of our lives as well. Maybe you don't have a horrible past. Maybe you didn't have a blinding light experience. Maybe you didn't have a story that you could retell in the way that Acts thinks it's worthy to retell it three times. Maybe your story is not worthy of that retelling. But I think there's some things that we draw from Paul's story that speak to our stories as well. The first I'll just recap from last week is that we said that the grace of God is deep enough to forgive and to cleanse any and all sin. That's the very basic place where we start and begin is that the grace of God is what is active and present and most palpable inside of this situation and this story. But to go on from there, I, I want to just unpack that a little bit. You, you know and I know that uh, what we have taken place inside of our life is not just a belief system or a moral code or a church affiliation, but your life and my life has been marked by an event that took place. The specific event of the cross of Jesus Christ, the specific event of the resurrection, but also I want to say that in your life and in my life, the event where we met Christ, even if that was at an early age, there are times where we bowed our knee. There are times maybe where later in life, even though you grew up in the church, that you came to a place where you made it your own. That salvation is always uh, takes place inside of an event because I think God meets us in the power of a moment and in the specificity of a moment. In fact, this fall, we're going to look at this a little bit further and spend a few weeks thinking about the God moments inside of our lives, whether they be salvation moments or just other moments where God speaks directly, that we believe that we don't just live in this thing called time where every moment is just like every other, but there are moments where God can break through and that God can speak and God can intervene and God can direct. And our lives are filled with God moments. This was a God moment for Paul. It may be way more extraordinary than you would think the God moments are inside of your life, but we all have them. And I would almost say that if we don't have them, then a couple of things need to happen. One is we need to go back and think through and say, where are the moments where God met me? Where I know that I know that I know that I heard from God, that I saw God, that God began to move, that God began to direct, that I was going this way and then I changed and went that way. Because those moments, I think, galvanize our faith. And those moments also become the testimony that we use to point to Jesus. Nobody wants to hear about what you believe that's different than what they believe. Nobody wants to hear about where you spend your Sunday mornings at 8.30 or 11 o'clock. Nobody wants to hear about, you know, the moral fabric inside of your life. But what people do want to hear about is what changed inside of your life that you were going this way and something happened. Or you were in the middle of a situation and God broke through. Where are those moments where there was an intersection between the divine and the human and your life has looked different? 
that is the part of your story that speaks out in high volume and high definition to people inside of your life. To the early Christians, their faith was centered not in a belief system or a moral code, but in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the rest of Paul's life, his life would not be defined by what he grew up learning, but about the moment where he met Jesus. Our faith is based on a set of events, not just simply on a belief system or a moral code. But you know, those crisis events, those moments are also accented by process. And process can be relationships, process is learning, it's study, it's, it's time. That your, you know, the theological term is your Christian faith is marked by both crisis and process. And we need both. Because if we only have crisis events, then what we go is from one spiritual high to the next. And if you only have process, then it's just this ongoing growth with no specific moments where change takes place. But your life is marked by both crisis and process. So even the Apostle Paul, we think of he's going his own way and God gets a hold of him and Paul didn't need anything else or anybody else. But it's interesting that Paul gets up from this situation and he can't see. The one who was coming to persecute the church now has to be led by the hand into Jerusalem or into Damascus. It's interesting that when he goes there, uh, that God uses a man named Ananias, who might be one of my heroes inside of scripture. We don't hear from him ever again. But Ananias had the job of listening to God and actually going and speaking to Paul about Jesus. They knew who Paul was. They know why he was coming to Damascus. They know the danger that could be theirs. And God begins to speak and says, Ananias, I want you to go and find this guy named Paul down on a street that's called Straight. And when you go down to Straight Street and you find the house and you go in, I want you to talk to Paul because he's praying. And I, Ananias says, uh, let me just get this straight. It's the same Saul we're talking about, right? Because I've heard the stories and I know why he's coming and I've heard the rumors. And to be honest, I'm a little bit scared. And I think maybe somebody's setting me up and playing a bad joke on me. But uh, nevertheless, I'll go. It's interesting to me that Ananias, when he goes into the room, and you can read about this at the second half of chapter 9, goes in and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me here to speak to you. That from the very beginning, Ananias understood that the grace of God was deep enough to forgive and to cleanse any and all sin. And he recognized that in a moment, God could get a hold of a person's life, even a person like Saul. And the first word out of his mouth is, Brother. You don't say that without trust inside of the process of what God can do inside of a human heart. And so God uses Ananias to, to come alongside Paul in a very vulnerable point in time inside of his life. There are years that take place between the Damascus Road experience and when Paul sets out on his first missionary journey. There are a countless number of other people who you know, kind of help you know, round off the rough edges of Paul or speak into his life or or train him up, or challenge him, or give him opportunities for ministry. And next week we're going to talk about that a little bit more, those formative years, those seemingly silent years where we don't hear much about Paul's life. But your life and my life is marked not only by the crisis events, but by the process of the many people and the many opportunities 
or somebody uh, gave a challenge or somebody gave a word of instruction. And so I want to say for you then in ministry, sometimes we're a part of the, the crisis events where you can share your story in such a way that it makes a difference in somebody else's life. And sometimes you're part of the process. The number that's averaged out is it takes 20 touches, 20 personal encounters, 20 conversations, uh, 20 people inside of a person's life to lead them to Jesus. You don't get to be number 20 all the time. Sometimes you're number seven, and it's a faithful witness for Jesus, and you're part of somebody else's process. Sometimes you're number 14, and you come across when, when there's a a difficult conversation and you're able to add value into somebody else's life. Maybe even you get the privilege of being number one or two and that for somebody who is antagonistic to faith, they see inside the life of a Christian something that stirs their curiosity. Your life is marked by both crisis and process and so our ministry then is marked by both being part of those God moments inside of people's lives but also just being one of the people that God can use to make a difference. The final thing I want to share about this, because I think it speaks to where we are today, is that uh, rarely does change happen when things are going great and wonderful. But yet God seems to be able to use chaos and disruption and tragedy and difficulty to bring about change. I wonder if the reason Paul had to be blinded by the light and knocked to the ground and loses sight for a number of days is because with a person as hard-headed and as zealous as Paul, it would take something so vivid and so extraordinary to get his attention. And so instead of wishing that we had a Damascus Road experience, maybe we should be grateful that it didn't take all that much to get our attention. But inside of horrible situations, God does some of his best work. Several months ago, we were reminded that when life is at its worst, God is at his best. And inside of this situation, what God is able to take and do, even with somebody who is an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ, because he gets a hold of his heart. His routines were disrupted. His pattern was disrupted. Even the things that he knew to be true were disrupted. It's interesting that It was the death of Jesus that birthed the church. It's interesting to me that it's the death of Stephen that scatters the church. It's amazing to me even that it's the conversion of Paul, who is public enemy number one of the Christian church, that launches the gospel into Europe. A leader inside of the second century said that it's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. That makes us uncomfortable to think about. Nobody wants to talk about martyrdom. But you know that down through history, some of the places that have been uh, the most persecuted or the hardest areas for the gospel have been the places where God has done some of his best work. I'm not praying for persecution inside of our land. I'm not necessarily praying for more, you know, opposition to the gospel. But what I am praying is that in the places where I feel like are barren, are difficult or even oppositional. Those are not places that stand against the gospel, but maybe those are some of the best places where God can show up and his glory might be on display. 
So let's take, take that down a couple of notches to where you and I are living. Don't let this time of disruption simply be something that we want to endure and get through. But maybe, just maybe, God wants to change a pattern inside of your life because everything's been disrupted. Maybe God wants to teach you something new or call you somewhere different or remake a portion of your life or reorient a priority inside of your life because when everything gets moved and shifted around, there is an openness maybe to God doing something new in us and through us. F.F. Bruce uh, gives an analogy for what took place inside of Paul's conversion. And he said, if if you take a magnet and everything kind of falls in line based on the, the force of the magnet, the magnet inside of Paul's life was the law. He grew up learning about the law. He built his life around the law. He gave his life and ministry towards the the preserving and zeal for the law. And this faith of his, this religion of his, this deep belief in God was built around as the centerpiece, the law. And what happened on the Damascus Road for Paul was not a new religion, but rather the magnet wasn't any longer going to be the law, but was going to be the person in the work of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And it's almost like when the magnet was shifted, the order of things and where everything fell into perspective for Paul changed and fell into place because he got a new centerpiece to his life. That analogy resonated with me because, again, I don't have a Paul conversion story. There was no blinding light. There were no fireworks. But yet I remember specifically that at 14 years of age, trying to think what my life was going to be built around And it was almost like everything that I tried to be the central magnet that was going to put everything else in proper order and perspective didn't seem to fit and didn't seem sufficient enough. But when Jesus came into my life, it was almost like everything else found its proper placement. I had finally found my magnet. So let me ask you this morning. Not was your conversion story like Paul's, not that you have a vivid story to tell, but what's the central magnet inside of your life? Paul would say it this way in Philippians 3, and this is after he's gone through the whole resume of all the things that marked his life before Jesus. And then he says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord, what's at the center, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, the old magnet, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's Paul's story. What's your story? Your story is the most powerful evidence of the goodness of God and the efficacy of the gospel. Tell your story whether or not it is vivid and extraordinary or whether it's just an ordinary story of God getting a hold of a person's life. 
in this season of disruption. Allow God to rewrite and reorder patterns and priorities and routines and goals inside of your life. And maybe the biggest question of all is, will you allow God to clarify what's the magnet that's at the center of your life that holds everything else in proper perspective? In church, it's easy to think, obviously, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. But I wonder if we were to really stop and say, what is at the center of my life? And maybe a better way to say that, if somebody were auditing my life from a distance, what would they conclude? If they looked at my priorities, my goals, and my dreams, and my words, and my relationships, and my spending, and, and you know the things that my life was built around and built towards, what would they conclude was the centerpiece of my life? What's the magnet of your life? So in a couple of moments, we're going to come back and receive uh, communion together. And so at this time, uh, during this next song, you might want to take a moment and just uh, pull together the, the, the people and the elements and just prepare uh, for this uh, powerful symbol that reminds us, again, that at the center of our life, there's surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. That's what we build our lives around. God, we thank you for uh, what you did to get a hold of the life of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the great lengths that you've gone also to, uh, to reach and to know and to redeem us. We thank you, God, that at the very center of our lives is what it means uh, for Jesus to be Lord of all. Lord, that you can reorient our lives. You can uh, do something even in times of disruption to build our lives to look more like you. Father, you can use even our stories uh, to point towards the greatness of our God. So Jesus, this morning we would ask that you would be the center, that you would be the magnet that holds everything else in proper placement and perspective. We pray that you would meet us even inside of our closing moments of our time together this morning. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.